You're now listening to the Live Different Podcast with Matt Wilson. What's up, everybody? It's Matt coming to you from Bali, Indonesia. You are about to hear an amazing episode with Gary Arndt at Everything Everywhere. Incredible dude, has sold companies, traveled around the world, is now a legendary travel photographer and just a thoughtful individual who really does travel the right way, if you ask me. But I wanted to ask you first, if you have seen Under 30 Experiences' new trip to New Zealand, it looks incredible. I have not yet been to New Zealand, and I am really happy that a lot of people are going to get this experience. And we've called it one of our bucket list experiences. Of course, that term can be a little bit played out, but everything from bungee jumping to skydiving to optional at heli hiking, going on a helicopter and going up to glaciers and going hiking is all things that are within access in the places that we can go. New Zealand is one of the adventure capitals of the world. So especially if you've been on our trip to Iceland and are looking for a trip that is twice as long and probably just as incredible, I think you should check that out. Under30experiences.com. And no, we are not just for under 30s, ages 21 to 35. If you're still cool, we will still want to hang out with you in our community. So don't worry. And if you want to come on an awesome yoga and mindfulness to Costa Rica this April, hit me up on Instagram at Matt Wilson TV. Would love to see you there. Without further ado, Gary Arndt. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Matt Wilson. And today I am here with Gary Arndt from Everything Everywhere. If you don't follow Gary on Instagram already, you should be joining the 200,000 people out there uh, getting a chance to view his beautiful travel photos. You may have heard him a few years ago now on the podcast. It was titled Sell Your Company and Become the World's Best Travel Blogger with Gary Arndt. Of course, that is in reference to a lot of the awards that he has won for his photography and travel blogging. He's been to over 185 countries slash territories and 150 U.S. national parks, all 50 states, every Canadian province. 2014 Society of American Travel Writers Photographer of the Year, among other, other things, including the 2013 and 2015 North American Travel Journalist Association Photographer of the Year. So, I know it's an impressive bio, and we're happy to have you back on, Gary. Thanks for having me. Of course, absolutely. Before we we dive into to some things here, I'm excited, of course, to talk to you today, but I'm curious about your last trip, where you've been, what you've seen lately. Well, my most recent trip, uh, last week, yeah, I guess it's been more than a little more than a week now, I was in Sri in the Maldives. That was my first time there. I was there for a convention in Sri Lanka. And when I was there, I figured I might as well go to the Maldives. So, because it's right nearby, it's like a 90 minute flight from Colombia. So, I was there. And that was my most recent. And then, most of this summer, I spent in Europe. I did a of the Baltic states with G Adventures. I did a side trip to Bruce and St. Petersburg. I did a rip from Normandy to Berlin. 
I visited the heritage sites of the Czech Republic and then also the World Heritage Sites of Switzerland. Beautiful. I'm looking at your Instagram right now, and I see some of these aerial photographs of the Maldives. It, it looks like an incredible place. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more. Well, the Maldives are one of the countries in the world that is made up entirely out of coral atolls. So these are not like mountainous islands. They're basically just sandbars. And uh, the other three are in the Pacific. This one is in the Indian Ocean. So it's not a big country, obviously. Most country today, you know, its money comes from tourism and especially tourism. It's not really a backpack nation because there's so little land. The capital, Male, which is on one of the islands, it's just jam-packed with buildings because there's just so little room. And then all of the other smaller islands that just the rest of the country have kind of been taken over by hearts. Wow, it looks beautiful. And I see that this is your 128th country in the United Nations, which you visited. And I know that I just mentioned that you've been to over 185 countries slash territories. So I'd love to know the difference if you know the technicalities of it. So yeah, actually, the number is 200 now. Okay. It basically, so the cause of the world, and, and this is kind of, you know, when people say, how many countries have you been to? I always ask, you mean, because there are places, it's not cut and dry. So there are 193 member states of the United Nations. But for example, let's say just hypothetically, I will you that I was going to France. What do you assume mean when I say I'm going to France? I assume that you're going to fly into somewhere like Charles de Gaulle in, in Paris and go somewhere in the nation of France in Europe as we know it. Exactly. So it's the European country where they wear berets and eat baguettes, and that's France. Except part of France is French Polynesia. That is France. It is the territory of France. They vote for president. They have seats in their parliament. That is France as Hawaii is the United States. French Guiana is part of France. Guadeloupe and Martinique Indian are part of France. The island of Reunion in the ocean is part of France. So those things are all of France, just as much as Paris is. The thing is, so when I say I'm going to France, you know, ocean would be exactly the correct assumption that that most people would make. Uh, it's more than that. So when you're talking about territories, you're talking about places like Guiana, French Polynesia, Puerto Rico, Guam, Greenland, Gibraltar, the Falkland Islands, all these bits that kind of exist that are countries, but are also kind of not fully out of a country, if that makes sense. Sure. Or there's at least a geographical decision to be made that even if politically uh, France is part of France, it's a different thing, right? That is of the normal usage. So the Traveler Century has a list of not just the 193 member states of the UN, but they have 327 countries and territories, which include things like things I just mentioned. And then it would also include Antarctica, which is obviously not a country, but it's a thing. Palestine, Taiwan, Kosovo, these are all places which are de facto countries, meaning that they are a country in, in that they have their own passports and currency and that kind of stuff, but they're not in the United Nations. 
The Vatican would be another example that's considered a country, but not in the United Nations. So there's all these sort of oddball little parts of the earth that are not covered in 193 country thing, but they're places you can visit. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, Gary, most of these places sound like islands. It's funny that you mentioned Taiwan because I had my passport in my pocket the other day and I was back in New York and my niece's nanny is from China. She speaks Mandarin, speaks Mandarin to my nieces. They're pretty fluent for five-year-olds as far as I understand. Of course, I have no clue and they wanted to see my passport and they were flipping through and they saw Taiwan and you know, of course, she saw it over over my shoulder and she said, oh, China. And I, I thought that was interesting because, you know, it says something in, in Mandarin and then it says ROC Taiwan. Republic of China is, I believe, what it stands for. But there are a lot of places in the world that are in some type of dispute. I don't know if you know more about the situation in Taiwan or I also wanted to ask you these places seem like a lot of islands. And I know that has been a place that you've been to many, many islands, especially in the South Pacific, where there is probably a lot of different territories. Is that correct? Yeah, a lot of them are island, precisely because an island is always geographically separated from if they're associated with a country or, or another territory. So yeah, a lot of the islands, but there are some that are not. So Somaliland, which is the northern part of Somalia, is basically an in-country. They have their own elections. They've had transfers of power. They control their borders. They have an army. They have currency. But no recognizes them as a country. There's Abkhazia, South Ostetia, Transnistria, which are all in the Caucasus or in Eastern, that kind of have a similar status, where they're de facto independent, but they're not independent in name. They're not recognized by other countries. And I, I noticed in this this post, now that I'm skimming it a little further, it says, uh, it does mention that it's your 200th territory on the Travelers Century Club, the TCC, which you say divides the world into 327 territories, which include places like Greenland and Puerto Rico, as you mentioned. But you're saying that Greenland is not actually a country? It is not a member of the United Nations. No, it is technically a Tory of Denmark along with the Faroe Islands. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. That's really interesting. And, and I'm curious how you pick these places, because a lot of people think, all right, I want to go to a country like India. I want to go to a country like South Africa. I want to go to China. I know that once you've visited 100 plus countries, yeah, you, you've probably crossed all most of those off. But how do you decide where to go? Strangely enough, I've been to more countries than big countries. Like I have never been in mainland China yet. God, I've been hundred meters from the border, but I just haven't gone in. I only went to Russia for the first time this year and that was just St. Petersburg. So, you know, that's a huge part of the map, but I've only been to one tiny bit and get to India until two years ago. Those are really big countries. And if you go to India, you go to the Taj Mahal, you can't really say, okay, India. I mean, technically, you have been in, in India, but these countries are so big, it's almost like they're made up of dual countries, especially someplace like India, where you have completely different language, completely different cultures in different parts of the country. 
And it's a vastly different place that's all lumped together in one political unit. So you can go to India, obviously, and, and see some of these things. But to read properly, I think you're going to have to make multiple trips. I went to India. It was just my first trip to India. Of course. What do you say to people who are maybe overly obsessed with country counting? I, I understand as a travel blogger, sometimes it's a badge of honor and it does show that you're well-versed, et cetera. But I think a lot of people miss the point on you know, just checking the boxes as they go. What do you say to those people? Well, the other point, I mean, I've been to a lot of places, but if I really wanted, I could easily have been to every country in the world by now. Easily. Uh, like I said, I was 100 meters from the border of mainland China. I spent two weeks in Hong Kong, could have easily gotten a visa, gone over the border, claimed victory, crossed it off the list. A lot of the places I've been, so it's not like I've just been there, but I just say every state in Australia, all of them. I've been to every heritage site in Australia, which has taken me to a lot of really weird places. All uh, I'm working on visiting every national park in Canada every national park in the U.S. I've been to every state in Germany. I've been to every state in South Africa. And I want to really see the whole country. And I know a lot of people, they just literally will go to the port and that's it. So they have a stamp in their passport and they can say they were there, but they, they never actually sing. And I think that's kind of ridiculous. It defeats the whole point. You're not a well-traveled person. You are a well-supported person. <laughs> sure. Of course, that begs the question, how does one become well-traveled? You just got to do it. I mean, uh, time. You know, it's a lifelong endeavor. It's not something you can just do. Because when I started, if you've ever gone to like a restaurant and you're like, oh, that looks good, that looks good. And then you order it too much. And then at the end of it, you're like, oh, man, I, there's no way I could eat all that. That was what it was like when I first started like, this is back in, you know, 2006, 2007, Emperor for this trip. And I, I bought books like, you know, A Thousand Places Before You Die. And I'm doing all this research online. And I'm like, oh, I want to go, want to go there. I want to go there. And it wasn't until I got started that I realized this takes time. There's a lot of places that I intended to visit when I started traveling that I still haven't been to. Just because you learn about other things along the way. You're in a place and you're like, well, I'm right here. I might as well go on this thing that's really close. And you just never end up getting this other cool thing that you want to go visit. And so, yeah, it, it's a thing. And you really have to look at it as a life suit, not just something you can't cram everything into one year or years or even three. I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I had a conversation with Christensen recently, he, I know he is one of your co-hosts on This Week in Travel, and you mentioned learning. And I said to him, I said, well, yeah, I, I like to hang around with other travelers because I find them generally curious people who want to learn about the world. And he kind of laughed it off and he said, well, that's not really true. Maybe those are your friends or maybe those are the travelers that you seem to gravitate towards. And then I even made the distinction between, well, okay, I'm not trying to hang out with a bunch of tourists who are just there to take a picture of the Eiffel Tower and leave or be more curious or people who are more obsessed with taking pictures of the thing than actually knowing what the thing is. 
What's your opinion on that? Do you agree with Chris? It depends. The reason I feel is basically to learn. It's just a big school. It's just a never-end process of learning about it because you you can't help it. If you are on the road, you are going to be learning about new things. But I've noticed for the last 10 years, this is especially with the rise of smartphones and social media, that there is more and more people who I think are traveling basically to show off. You know, they're far more about getting a selfie and showing the rest of the world, look at what I'm doing, look at where I am. Isn't my life glamorous? You know, I've been 12 years and there are maybe 12 photos of myself. Uh, I just take any selfies ever. I just not something that I care to show people what I'm doing. And the fact of the matter is a lot of travel is really not glamorous. I'm not interested in traveling with nice clothing. I'm not interested in taking pictures of myself beach because the beaches aren't the most interesting places. And you sit there and you get hot and then, then you want to find shelter or something. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that are, are really interested in learning. There are some, but I think there's a lot of that. And conspicuous leisure was the, the economic term for it, developed by Thorstein Velden back in the 19th century. And I think it's especially true today. And I just see it so often. But they don't really care where they are. They don't really care the significance of the... And, and you wind up with this, the best example I can think of is people taking these in front of the entrance gate at Auschwitz or like that. Because there's there's no thinking about where they are, the significance of the place. It's just here I am, the photo. Yeah, on a place that I would necessarily want to selfie or be smiling real big at that uh, at that moment. Okay, so in today's modern day and age where it is... Yeah, it's all about the Instagram story and this is how people grow their following. And I know there's a lot of travel bloggers listening in, but they don't want to make everything about them. Uh, how could you help them navigate this interesting time where you don't necessarily want to be showing off your conspicuous leisure time? Maybe not be so conspicuous about it, yet still... You know, I like to promote that I'm out having fun and, and living my life the way I want to. And that is an inspiration to a lot of people. So there is a certain balance that I try to strike. How about you? What would you tell people? You have to have, I think a lot of, if you're a travel blogger, uh, the concern is, well, the industry people and the destinations, all they care about is Instagram. There is a truth to that. But I, I see it changing because I talk to a lot of industry people all the time. And I think that they're, they got burned by this new breed of travel model, which is kind of developed the person who just takes pictures of themselves all over the world. And they actually may get a fair amount of engagement. But the question is, why are they engaged people? Are there any ideas that are being expressed? No. Is there any information about the places they're visiting? No. It's just pictures of that person. And the question is, if, you know, a photo of someone wearing a bikini on a beach, thousands and thousands of likes, what are they liking? Are they liking the bikini, liking the beach? I'm pretty sure it's the bikini because call anyone ever visiting someplace because of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. Whereas if they see that same beach in Tunisia, 
the context of why they would be seeing rested in that beach would be totally different. I think you have to have some sort of motivation and some sort of reason traveling. And a lot of people, especially if they're, they're slogs, I've noticed, it, all they're doing is they actually might be in traffic, but all they're doing is just pumping out things to do this over and over and over. And there's no individualism. They have no opinion. People don't even know necessarily. They're just getting this one-off traffic from Google over and over, uh, and that's it. And that works to a point. It certainly does. I can't deny it. The question is, if you want, you know, is that the kind of person you're going to want to interview podcast? And the answer is usually no. I totally understand. And I appreciate in a lot of your posts that you will actually write a good few paragraphs underneath what the thing is to explain, hey, this is the type of trip I am. This is why I'm doing this. This is where I am. And at least it gives some context rather than just so many travel photos that you see that are just oversaturated and, and exaggerated to the to the point where it's not what the actual thing looks like. So Gary, I, I own a, a tour operator called Under 30 Experiences uh, for people ages 21 to 35. We go all over the world. We service the millennial traveler. And this Instagram effect is a huge issue in sustainable tourism. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on this issue of the over-tourism that you can get instantly, excuse the, the pun here from, uh, from Instagram, but you can get all of a sudden a massive amount of people traveling to see something just because something went viral and it may or may not be a cool place, but the areas themselves really have to adjust quickly. And there are a lot of unintended consequences that come from this type of attention. And I know that you work directly with a lot of these places around the world. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I'm actually writing a book on the subject. Great. God, I ask. Yeah, so you have a small number of places that get most of the tourists. And I think a lot of it has to the fact that people just aren't aware of what else exists. So if you ask the average American, name a city in France other than Paris. I think most people would be completely stumped. They would idea. If you were to ask them to name a city in England, for example, other than London, they might come up with Liverpool or Manchester, and then that's it. And so is most people go to these places because they just don't know anything else. And that's where the crews up and that's where the international airports are. So that's where they end up going. And a lot of it is just being aware what else exists. And so actually, I've been running a series on Instagram uh, before the trip to Sri Lanka, I was doing it, basically highlighting places that I really kind of undervisited. I'm glad that you're doing that. And Undervisited is an interesting way to put it. I always hear in the industry off the beaten path, which means the same thing. Is that correct? Yeah, basically. I mean, let me give you a good example. I mean, if you go to my Instagram feed, you can actually scroll down, I think, like to the fourth row. Example, if I say, you know, name some great national parks, what would be top of your mind instantly? Okay. Yosemite, right? Everybody yep. probably goes there. The Everglades is one. Let's see, Zion, I'm just naming Death Valley. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Yellowstone would be one. If you go into Canada, you got Banff. 
These are the most visited parks, all the ones that you you mentioned. They are usually, with the exception of Yellowstone, like Everglades is right out of Miami. Uh, Yosemite is three-hour drive from San Francisco. Both Death and Zion are accessible from Las Vegas. So there's some major city next to them. Yeah, Grand Canyon. Yep. Best national park, I think, certainly in America, maybe the world, is Nahani National Park. Now, I'm guessing you might not have heard of it before. I have never heard of it before. Exactly. Most people listening to this probably haven't. Nahani Park is in the Northwest Territories of Canada. It has one of the largest waterfall world in terms of volume called uh, Virginia Falls. It's higher than Niagara's. has the same similar waterfall to, say, Victoria Falls in Africa. It has a massive canyon, huge plebs, fantastic mountain peaks, and uh, it gets eight visitors a year. 800. And to give you an idea, in Alberta, gets about 5 million. Wow. That's mind-blowing. So how can we shift the traffic to the under-visited places? Because as a tour operator, we deal with this all the time. Everybody wants to go to Machu Picchu, but unfortunately, this sacred site can feel more like Disneyland. And we always tell our travelers, look, Machu Picchu, that day is crazy. You're going to enjoy the Sacred Valley and Cusco and all these other places that we bring you way more than probably your day at Machu Picchu. But it's difficult when everybody wants that picture of them standing in front of Machu Picchu and it drives sales and drives the industry. I mean, it's the jewel of Latin America, right? Arguably. So how do we drive people off the beaten path a little bit more? Uh, That is they have to know about the alternatives. So for example, it's a good chance, maybe you, maybe someone listening to this, either right now at their computer or after this, go do a search on Nahani National Park because they want to see this for themselves. So I'm a well-traveled guy. I'm saying this is one of the greatest national parks in the world. What's he talking about? And see some photos, they're going to go, wow, this is amazing. Five minutes earlier, they had no idea this place existed. And there was a time when places like Machu Picchu, you know, just to give you an example, are you familiar with the history of Machu Picchu was rediscovered? In with Hiram Bingham and all that? Yeah. So I actually, you know, before I started traveling, I had National Geographics. And there is actually a uh, but it was published from Hiram Bingham's expedition. There were only 500 of them made. I have one of them. It's like sitting right next to my, my shelf. But before that, you know, in the early 20th century, before the photos were published in Geographic, nobody knew about Machu Picchu. It was completely, it was like Nahani National Park is when I told you. Very few people about it. But through the Pacquia, it became a thing. And then everyone knew about it. And then everyone wanted to go there. And that's how a lot of these places become popular. They do it through history sometimes. You know, Rome is Rome. It's the head of the Catholic Church. It was the head of the Roman Empire. It's huge historical significance. Everybody knows about Rome. What they might not know is that some of the best Roman ruins you can find are actually just outside. If you go up into the hills, into the town of uh, Tivoli, you can find the Emperor Hadrian's villa. It's in relatively good condition. You can still see a lot of the statues that are in, or you can go down to the coast near Ostia Antica, which was the port city of Rome. And that's in a condition where it's almost as good as what you'll Pompeii. Not quite, but you can still see the mosaics on the old fish. You can still see the toilets 
that abused in Rome. So most people have no idea that those things are there. All they know about is Rome. And it's just a matter of letting know about this. Now, to be sure, if you're going to Peru, Machu Picchu is a great spot, right? You know, I'm not saying places suck. I'm just saying that there are other places out there and people just know about it. And that's just a process that is going to take time. And hopefully as people become more traveled, maybe if they, they do go to Peru, their second trip, they're going to say, okay, now that I went there, I learned about these places. Now I want to go see X, Y, and Z. That makes a lot of sense. And unfortunately for us in the millennial market, for a young person are pretty much one and done for the next five years, right? A millennial with a blank passport is wants to go to Machu Picchu, but then their next 10 trips are probably not going to be back to Peru. And uh, it, it's something that we've discussed at the conferences with the Adventure Travel Trade Association and how to you know, still be able to give people their their bucket list experiences, but again, get them off the beaten path and there's no easy fix. And I'm curious where you might suggest people learning. What are some of the best resources to learn about places? You know, a couple of years ago, I used to tell people, look, Costa Rica is really cool, but Nicaragua is way more amazing. Now, due to current political stuff, I would no longer suggest that. But where would you suggest people learn about the off the beaten path places? You got to do some research because obviously they're not well known. You know, why are people going to Costa Rica? Probably because their friends went to Costa Rica and they know they went to Costa Rica or they have a friend of a friend that went there. That's how people about a lot of these things through word of mouth. And the problem with word of mouth is that it tends to reinforce the places that are already popular, right? Our neighbors went to Disney World. Now we got to go to Disney World. And it's very difficult to brag to someone about a place they have never heard of. Whereas if you can to them, that's why I'm talking about this conspicuous leisure. If you're doing it to impress other people, it has to be something that they've heard of. Otherwise, you don't impress them. A really good example is in the Pacific, where I started my travels. There's only places that people are going to go, like Bora Bora. I remember talking to one woman. She said, oh, yeah, I'm going to Bora Bora. And I'm like, well, you know, if you go to the Cook Islands, it's way cheaper. It's nicer. Not nearly as many people. Now, I gave her all these reasons. She's like, yeah, but I want to go to Bora Bora. Because she just had it stuck in her head, right? right. She, she saw the pictures of the water bows. She saw them in a travel magazine. It's in Bora Bora. And, you know, it, it is a beautiful place. And that was where she wanted to go. That's what she saw. That's what she was aware of. And this other place, she wasn't aware of that. It never caught her imagination, right? So it's not where she wanted to go. And... I think someone has to first want to do that. And all, you know, all this is out there. And the reason I've discovered so many of these places, to be honest, is as I go to UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Nahani National Park was the first World Heritage Sites in the world. Uh, it was put on the list in 78. So that's why I went up there. And it was through that that was kind of the discovery process. Now, wow, this is amazing. And I've been to a lot of places like that where I went because of list. And, you know, nine times out of, it's going to be a fantastic experience in a place that I probably didn't know about. That's great. And just to reinforce the point, you were successful without going to 
the big places. You went to the South Pacific, to the Cook Islands, where maybe nobody had ever heard of nor wanted to necessarily see a photo of or read about, etc., because it wasn't in the spotlight. So how did you become successful by going far off the beaten path? The world's really big, right? And the problem is, if you want to stand apart from the crowd, the first thing you have to do is sling what everyone else is doing. Yet the problem is, when people get into blogging, they see what everyone's going to say, well, I guess I better do that because that's what everyone's doing. And that is the opposite of what you probably should be doing. You're not going to stand apart from the crowd. You're just another, you know, blogger. That's all. And no one's really going to have to say, yeah, you'll write some stuff and maybe you'll rank on Google for something, but they won't know who you are. You know, it's just drive-by traffic. You kind of have to do that. And the total audience that's available online is enormous. It's for all practical purpose, infinite as far as what, what a person can deal with. More than enough room for someone to do something unique online and to develop an audience that is going to be interested in that unique thing that you're doing. Now, that's uh, that's great. And I'm I'm glad that you are an example of that. But I know as a blogger, right, I, I've been doing different types of blogging for since 2007 or so. And yeah, it's easy to just go on and, and see what's working and be another me too or be another copycat. And I'm glad that you're reinforcing that. Gary, I, I wanted to actually ask you uh, something a little bit more philosophical. And you talked a lot about these nation states and the borders and places that are recognized by the United Nations, some places that are not. Uh, we have immigration as such a huge issue in the United States right now. So I'm curious if you subscribe to any of these ideas of global citizenship and open borders and that immigration doesn't really matter all that much or that we should all just be one big nation with universal income. What are your thoughts on some of this stuff? I'm curious. Oh, I'm I'm pretty much a realist. One thing you'll notice is that I never do politics, which is not to say I don't have opinions on these things. I mean, but because we live in a world where we do have 193 names, and that's not going to change. That number may go up. I don't think go down. More and more people want independence. You know, the Catalonians want to separate from Spain. Scotland wants to separate from England. France and Wall or uh, Flanders and Wallonia may separate. There's parts of Italy that want to separate. So that's not even going into places such as Western China, Tibet. There are Hawaiians that want to separate U.S. So there's there's more secession movements than there are people to do the opposite. That's just a reality. Then the question is how those nations go about acting with each other. And again, I don't think we're going to get rid of passport. I don't think we're going to have open borders. But I do certainly believe that facilitating commerce, travel, is a good thing. One of the reasons why the United States has been able to become so prosperous over its history is that we had basically a, an enormous, wide free trade zone. And we didn't have the, you think of, say, North America, or the United States in particular, and continental Europe. 
approximately the same size or in the ballpark in terms of relation. But until recently, uh, there were borders between all the countries we needed a passport. There were tariffs and everything else, and they're all closed off from each other. Whereas in the United States, everything was very open, right? There was never controls or restrictions between states. And as a result, we had a very big yeah, to grow an economy. And I think that's very much a good thing. Uh, and likewise, I think it's, it's great when people can travel. And I think that the United should make it easier for people to visit. I think it would improve our economy. I think it would improve people's perceptions of the U.S. But the idea of open borders, I think, is probably not too realistic. I think you're right on a lot of those topics. And I'm curious why really considerate people like yourself, people who have a considerate in the way that you've considered a lot of different things. You've, you've thought deeply about the world, it seems. I, I like how you think. There's the compliment that I'm trying to give you. Why don't you engage in conversation about politics? No one has ever asked my opinion. I would not change anyone's mind about anything. And moreover, I believe the world is very nuanced. Uh, that's one thing traveling has taught me, is that there's never a simple answer to almost any question. And we live in an environment, everything has to be black and white. You're either with us, you're against us, you're good, bad. The idea that there could be some sort of shades between things just doesn't exist. So there's really no point in any sort of debate because it will achieve nothing. I mean, people have you seen get into big arguments on Facebook and have you ever had their mind changed from one of those arguments? No, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, probably not on Facebook. No, I, I don't see the point. It, it achieves nothing. And the reason why I get into these discussions is not because they're trying to advocate and change behinds. They're primarily doing it for virtue signaling. It is sending a signal to the members of their tribe. Look how virtuous I am. I am fighting for our cause. And they're actually trying to advance the cause, but to signal to others that they're doing it. And this is true on the right and the left. Uh, I see it all the time. People engaging in basically useless activity that will achieve nothing, will not advance anyone's goals, basically then to make themselves look virtuous to the people they want to lose to. Yeah. And it becomes an echo chamber where everyone is discussing the same ideas. But I, I did want to ask you that. And of course, I you know, I feel generally the same that engaging in this type of stuff on, on Facebook isn't going to make your day any better. That's for damn sure. Uh, and it probably isn't going to change the world. Uh, but as a podcaster and someone with a large following like yourself, I'm curious if you ever think about the tribe that you are influencing and the way that you influence them. And if you see that the borders matter a whole lot less because everybody's in their phones and online and not really speaking with their neighbors, but they are tapped into their tribe on YouTube or on their podcast or within their echo chamber of Facebook friends because you unfriended everybody who you didn't really care for their, their opinions. Do you think about these things? Yeah, I think we're in the middle of a change I mean, we're new to all this social media stuff, right? One of the biggest issues that humans have had to deal with in this era, this goes back maybe in the last 100 years, is that he always lived in an environment of scarcity. For example, a scarcity of food. Well, we've kind of solved that problem of scarcity. And 
you know, at a very big picture level, not into a lot of the details. You know, now our biggest problem is not famine and starvation, but it's obesity. Information is something we have always been starved for. Now the internet has basically created abundance in information. And maybe you know like your your parents or your grandparents, and you know, you see them every the first thing they do is they always gossip about other ones or things like that. That was normal behavior in a where every everyone you knew lived in the same village. But fine, we behave in a very different way. And so we're figuring this stuff out. In the last year, there's become a big backlash against media. There's more people leaving social media because they're trying to find this balance to make, to figure out how all this works. So yeah, I use social media, but I usually try to do it as some sort of way to educate people and not use it as a platform for politics, for example. I purposely stay away. From and I've had people say, oh, well, that's just, I can shit way to do it. It's like, well, no, it's like, I truly don't care. And it would be a waste of time. And simply trying to inform people is going to bore than trying to get them or convince them that I'm right. Fair enough. And I certainly see when people are trying to take their time to be disconnected, that they often disconnect only with the people whose little tribe that they belong to, whether you go to CrossFit after work or whether you go to yoga or whether you go to a happy hour with your coworkers who all think the same way of you. So it is interesting. But one of the things about travel that I really enjoy is that I'm able to have conversation. It forces you to have conversations with people who are very much unlike you. And I'm curious if you find the same value and travel in, and if so, how? Oh, yeah. Uh, a good example is, I think it was back in 2008, I was staying at a hostel in Tokyo. And we were up real late, as you do. And the great part about Japan is they have beer and vending. And so we we're up and it was a bunch of years. And it was these two guys that were part of a rap group. They were in Japan and they were from Philadelphia. Probably never have met these guys or have had anything to do with them other than this environment. And it was us and a bunch of Europeans. And of course, you know, it gets on, you know, they're complaining about America and everything else. And guys that I otherwise probably never would have had anything in common with, all of a sudden were like, you know, kind of trying to explain the United States to these people because they just didn't get it because they were looking at it through their worldview. We were like, well, no, there's a reason for this, blah, 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 blah. That always sticks with me because I would never would have been in an environment to, to hang out with those people, drinks with them, and to get into a discussion like that. And yeah, I mean, that's that's the beautiful part about it. So take you uh, out of your environment. And I, I do think there's a type of person that does travel. You have to be open to it. You know, one of the biggest differences, I think, is not necessarily right versus left, Democrat, Republican. It's what I call parochialism, cosmopolitanism. And cosmopolitanism is someone who is open to travel, open to different ideas, going to an ethnic restaurant, whereas a parochial is not interested in any of that. They're interested in their own locality, what's happening around them. They're not interested in new ideas. And that, I think, is really one of the visions between people in the world today, especially in the U.S. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I was just listening to something on this topic of 
globalism and how it is. Yeah, the world is becoming smaller, yet just so much more segmented. And it almost seems that there is a digital land grab these days and that we are at the birth of, I really think in the early stages, sure, travel blogging might seem saturated to Gary Arndt, right? Who has been in it longer than definitely 90% of the people who are in it today. And you haven't even been doing it for that long compared to, as far as I know, compared to someone like Chris Christensen. So it's fascinating to kind of see this digital land grab of influence. And yeah, I, I just, Gary, I like how you you think through things. Something that you said to me two, three years ago stuck with me from the podcast that I've told countless travelers about. You mentioned this concept of how travelers want the nostalgia of going back in time and seeing people in their traditional clothes and living off the land and we mentioned the Sacred Valley of Peru, right? And we go to an indigenous place where people are still dressed in their native culture and they are very simple potato farmers who don't have any chemicals to use and they're still digging with their uh, what look like archaic tools. And people do love that, but it's important to show them that we're not going in a time machine here. A, this is how people live, but B, don't be disappointed when you go places and people are dressed in their Nike shirts or whatever, because those people are looking for a time machine. They're not looking for travel. They're not looking to go somewhere else. And you even mentioned, you know, Tokyo is an amazing place or, or Scandinavia is an amazing place to visit because it seems to be ahead of the United States in a lot of places. So anyway, I wanted to thank you personally for making that contribution to what I knew, know and hopefully in some way influencing the world in a better place, even if it is within our own echo chamber. And we can pull people who are more in the middle our way and hopefully make a positive impact. So yeah, thank you for that, Gary. It's my pleasure. And, and you're right. I think people need to realize that you're traveling in space, not time. And the way the world is in the 21st century, don't expect to go back to the 18th century. Everywhere in the world you go, and I do mean everywhere, uh, with the possible exception of some remote from the Amazon rainforest who haven't been in contact with anyone, people are going to be living somewhat modern lives. The only thing different is the degree. I forget who said it, I'm quoting someone, I, I don't know the name, but they said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so we have people that are using phones with all the information in the world at their fingertips, while there are still people using an oxen with a wooden plow. But over time, that's changing. And you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, that's an enormous amount. The number of people that were in extreme poverty has dropped dramatically over the last years, like dramatically. Like, like 150,000 people a day. And a lot of this has been variable things. Wireless technology. It used to be very expensive to string up telephones. And a lot of places were able to leapfrog that. You just put up a cell tower, boom, have a phone service. And so, yeah, it's happening. Expect to visit a cultural zoo because that's not what the world is. That is very well said. And I like how you said the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah, thanks again for that, Gary. And I wanted to actually ask you one last question. It's a lot 
lighter than the rest. Uh, I'm writing a book on travel for millennials. And of course, people want to know how to take better photographs. And I know this is a uh, something that I'm sure you have taught many courses on. But if you had to leave people just with some simple, actionable tips where they can become better photographers, whether they're on their iPhone or they're on their DSLR shooting in manual, what would you tell people? Take time to set up your shot. Most people stick their camera in front of their face and hit a button. Where if you just take a few steps to actually think about how you want to compose the image, and maybe that's taking a step forward or sideways, it can often make a huge difference. And you have to edit your photos. And that's true whether it's on a phone or a, a high-end camera. When you hit the button on your camera, you're not capturing truth. That is a big mistake, people. It's like, oh, editing photos is cheating or that's distorting. No, it's not. There are some arbitrary decisions that your camera make about settings, exposure, aperture, and no right answer to any of that. So just let you make those decisions. It's not necessarily making the right decisions. Certainly it is not. So taking a little bit of time and go to an app, whether it's an editing app on your own like Photoshop Express, and adjusting the sharpness, the contrast, the color, just those simple things can make a difference in the quality of your images. Excellent. Well, I think that is actionable enough. Like I have mentioned, we've we talked about your Instagram quite a lot. Gary, you are at everything, everywhere. You have two podcasts, The Global Travel Conspiracy, This Week in Travel. How can people get in touch with you, find you other places on the internet and reach out and be part of your community? I am the easiest person to find online. Just type my name, Gary Arndt, or type in everywhere or type in the words Gary and travel. You'll find my website, my social media. You'll find emails to contact me. Very easy to do. Excellent. Well, Gary, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me.